Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number eight on our discussion of the War of the Jewels. And tonight we will be continuing our discussion of uh, Tolkien's revision of the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, and in particular, we are coming to the very interesting section of the Quinta revision when we get to look at Tolkien considering and reconsidering his depiction of the dwarves. And this, I think, is this a fascinating section in large part because I find I have to keep reminding myself that he's writing this after he wrote The Lord of the Rings. And so we're going to be looking in a couple places um, at things that he wrote. Um, it's really easy... <sighs> There's a lot of things to be kind of surprised about. Um, the dwarves, I think, are one of those subjects that people's... I don't know. This might not be a fair way to characterize it. But I would say, I think that the dwarves, Tolkien's dwarves, capture the imagination of Tolkien's readers very frequently much more powerfully than they seemed to capture Tolkien's own imagination, if you see what I mean by that. There are a lot of people who are passionate in their interest in Tolkien's dwarves, who just love the dwarves that Tolkien depicted. And Tolkien himself spent really very little time thinking about the dwarves. He was, I'm not saying that he didn't like the dwarves, he didn't care about the dwarves, um, but I think of all of the things that you discover when you read the history of Middle-earth, all of those things, um, uh, of all the things that you go back and you, you sort of see how Tolkien's, you know, how these ideas grew in Tolkien's mind over time, I think the subject of the dwarves might be one of the most, one of the biggest surprises that a lot of people have. Um, it's not only when they see where the dwarves came from, like what Tolkien's original ideas for the dwarves are, that they're kind of shocked and scandalized. That happens, but it's not just that. It's that even as he goes through and writes The Hobbit and then writes The Lord of the Rings, um, the imagination of a lot of Tolkien readers, I think, is still kind of leaping ahead of Tolkien's own imagination in a lot of ways. Um, uh, and so we're going to be looking at a bunch of these things tonight. And I think it's um, uh, I think it's I think it's pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so. Um, <laughs> Jocelyn likes my sweater. Thanks. It's freezing here today. It's like one of those spring days in New England that's like between 40 and 45 degrees and wet and clammy. It's been just like one of those really... It's been a sweater day today. I'm just saying. I'm wearing a sweater today. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, right. Now, as JJ is joking and saying, uh, nonsense. Whatever I value and care about the most must have been what Tolkien valued and cared about most. And I hear that. Uh, that, of course, is certainly a um, known pattern uh, of internet discourse, for sure. Um, 
But anyway, we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at some of these things tonight. Um, just a, a couple quick announcements before we start. Um, I, we just had a lovely TechSmoot this past weekend. It was delightful uh, to see many of you uh, at TechSmoot this year down in San Antonio. We had a wonderful time. We had a bit of an adventure. Um, we were doing a hybrid moot. A live hybrid moot, and we lost internet connection, but persevered and continued broadcasting a hybrid moot without internet. Um, it was uh, it was it was it was pretty awesome, or at least without without Wi-Fi. Uh, so anyway, that was awesome, and um, it was um, it was it was it was a great time. I've been um, for those of you who are at um, uh, who are at MythMoot. Uh, one of the, for me, one of the personally momentous things is that um, uh, uh, we we did a, a session. Chad Bornholt and uh, uh, Matt Cannon, Evil Doctor Cannon, um, did um, did a, a teaching session where they were teaching everybody to write in Tengwar. And I will admit, this is something I'd never done. I just I had never taken the time to learn Tengwar before, and uh, you know I've confessed this before. That's just not something I've ever I've ever taken the time to do. But thanks to Chad and Matt, I learned Tengwar in their session, and so I've I've been practicing still. In fact, I just wrote on the back of this envelope I had on my desk. I just wrote this this Tengwar note to uh, to Chad, uh, practicing there. So you can you can see my my Tengwar practice. That I've been that I've been keeping up here, um, <laughs> but anyway, it's been um, it's been a lot of fun. There we go. There's Scott's notes that he was taking uh, uh, while he was uh, while he was attending. Um, yes, uh, Scott. As soon as we were doing this, I knew I was thinking of your calligraphy pens uh, that I saw at Sunshine Moot, and was thinking about exactly how gorgeous your tengwar was going to be uh, uh, as you were as you were practicing that along with us um, whereas I was practicing with my finger on my phone <laughs> on like a note app on my phone um, and then uh, uh, yeah and then I've just been writing in my ballpoint pen here on the literally on the back of an envelope um, but anyway it's um uh, that's been a lot of fun. I've been uh, been really enjoying that. So anyway, we had a great text moot. Looking forward to um, ex exactly. Say so there you go. Evil Doctor Cannon is here tonight. So Matt, see, I was that that's the note I was sending. To, I sent a note to Chad here tonight. So I'm keeping up my practice. Um, but um, yeah. Anyhow, so uh, text moot was awesome. Our next moot is Maple Moot next month in May on the twentieth of May. We're going to be in Toronto, in Canada for our first ever Canada-based moot. We're going to be at Maple Moot in Toronto. Um, so re registration is open for that. We also have um, a number of our fall moots now open and confirmed. We've got um, we've got Cascade Moot uh, in September, right near. Uh, right near the combined birthday, uh, is going to be Cascade Moot in Portland, Oregon, up to the Pacific Northwest for the first time. We have um, uh, Middle Moot on October 14th. I think it's the 14th. Pretty sure it's the 14th. Um, uh, yeah, we have Middle Moot out in Waterloo, Iowa on the 14th of October, followed immediately by New England Moot on the 21st of October here in New Hampshire in Derry at Studio Lab. And then on November 4th, we're going to be back in Denver for Mountain Moot again. Um, and um, and yes, David, actually, we are 
discussing the details of Osmoot 2. Absolutely, that is uh, that is currently under discussion. No, no, not Brisbane again. Uh, Sydney this time, most likely. Uh, we don't have a confirmed venue, uh, but uh, Sydney. Uh, we're looking at Sydney, probably Sydney, probably January of 2024, uh, you know, next January. But we're we're not we're still confirming the details there. But that is that is definitely under discussion. Looking forward to getting back to Osmoot. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, Mountain Moot, November fourth, Emily. That's the that's the plan. Um, so um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, there's going to be um, uh, there's going to be a great uh, 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 a whole bunch of wonderful mooting happening. And you know, we're we're already into the spring of 2024 now with uh, uh, you know finding venues and. Uh, uh, you know, doing some, doing some other moots and things. Uh, so it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a great time. I really, look, and then of course, in the midst of things, right in June, we have Myth Moot, the big one, um, our big major event uh, uh, as uh, in, the, in the middle of everything. So anyhow, that is, uh, uh, that is, the moots that are coming up. The last thing I want to emphasize before we get back to the text um uh, oh yeah, so uh, Tomas, the news about the next book in the series. So yeah, the um, the finalists for the next Mythgard Academy book are going to be announced soon. I know the uh, the winnowing process has been happening, um, and so the uh, the finalists will be announced, and there will be another round of voting uh, to vote w uh, the uh, among the finalists uh, which one is going to uh, uh, which one is going to be up for discussion next. So. We will see. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, yes, JJ, New England Moot is at Studio Lab again. That's right. That's right. Um, yes, it is. Um, so, uh, anyhow, okay. So, the other thing that I wanted to mention quick before we get back to the text uh, is clubs. So, our Signum Academy clubs uh, is having a... Um, Oh, not just the Learn Everywhere page, the clubs page. Um, we're having a big special. So our clubs program is our educational program for, for kids, third grade through high school. Um, and we have a bunch of new clubs out. And most importantly, we're doing a big promotion in the month of May. Anybody that you refer can get a free month of clubs. So that's a hundred dollar value, um, and they so they can they can take a class for a hundred dollar a hundred dollar class for free. Um, all you have to do is just recommend them. They can jump in and uh, start up in May. Uh, voting for the May sections uh, ends soon, so uh, you know we need to need to jump on that. Um, but. All they got to do, it's just a, it's just a, a simple three-step process. Step number one, create an account in BlackBerry, which is very simple. You can do it with any email address. Step number two, go over to here on the margin. Let me blow this up a little bit. Uh, under clubs, there's the family management tab. Go to family management and add a child. Uh, because, of course, your kids can't create their own accounts. You need to create, an, your grown-up needs to create an account, and then you add a child. So you see I've added my child. This is my ninth grader here, Matthias. Um, so I added him, and there he is. Then you just go to Available Clubs, and you will see the list of available clubs. There's Book Club. There's there's several book clubs. Narnia Club, Hobbit Club, Lord of the Rings Club. Um, that's a high school club. 
there's uh, Sparrows Creative Writing Club. There's the Japanese Conversation Club. And you will see if you've created, uh, if you, you know, created your child there in, in family management, it shows up here. So there's just this button right here, the vote button. It's all you got to do. All you got to do is go in and then just hit the vote button and say, yep, that's the one that my kid is interested in. And then, uh, uh, and then our wonderful team of schedulers will take over and uh, get things set up. This is the one my son is excited about, Japanese Conversation Club. Um, but yeah, Katie, by all means, uh, do share in the Prancing Pony group. This is like anybody who has kids or grandkids or, um, you know, we want to, we want to, uh, provide the opportunity for everybody to get involved. Um, absolutely. So anyhow, uh, fun stuff. So go ahead and go ahead and share this far and wide. We want to, we want to give people the opportunity. They can learn old English. My son has been in this one. Uh, he's been studying old English now for a couple of years. Uh, kind of fun, like, Oh, to be a ninth grader who can translate Beowulf. Uh, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, and then, uh, we have, uh, we have, uh, we have Latin too. So we have Latin and old English. We have Japanese conversation club, creative writing, and then Narnia, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and another middle school book club. Um, so all kinds of things. Anyway, this is what is happening. So I encourage you to spread the word about this. Um, you can, um, uh, you can, you can, uh, send a direct link to the clubs page or just go to Blackberry, uh, and the welcome to clubs page here. So that's just blackberry.signumuniversity.org slash clubs, and that'll get to it. Um, so, um, anyway, there's all kinds of, uh, uh, there's all kinds of fun stuff to do here. All right, let us get back to the text. Now, first, um, actually, our very first slide isn't about um, isn't about dwarves. So let's start that, and then we'll come back to dwarves. Uh, because our first slide is another one of the fun things that creeps up uh, in this section of the Quinta, and that is a return of one of my favorite characters, Alfwina. After the words, in the ancient days, at the end of the first sentence, the following footnote was added to the Quintus Silmarillion. This is Christopher, of course. As usual, the typist of LQ1, right, the, the, um, the first typescript version, uh, took up the footnote into the text, but it appears as a footnote in LQ2, whose typist was again working directly from the manuscript. So here's the, here's the footnote. These matters, which are not in the penas of Pengalod, I have added and taken from the Dorganus Yaur, the account of the shapes of the lands of old that Torhir Ifont made and is kept in Erisea, that those who, who will may understand more clearly, maybe, what is later said of their princes and their wars. Quoth Alfwina. Okay, so um, this is a really fun piece of evidence of the... And I've said this many times before. The one thing... Um, and I will start with my standard disclaimer about how uh, grateful I am to Christopher for everything that he did and how I, I, you know, enormously respect everything he did, which is my standard transition to complaining about something Christopher did, um, <laughs> which always makes me feel like a bore. But anyway, here we are. Um, I understand the reasons why he did it. But as I've said many times before, I am very, very sorry that we lost the frame narrative of the Silmarillion. Um, the Silmarillion, every Silmarillion version of the story that we've seen, 
um, even the fragmentary stuff that he's doing later on, seems all still to have been. It does not look to me as if Tolkien ever really abandoned the idea of telling the Silmarillion within a frame narrative. Not the same exact frame narrative necessarily that we had in the Book of Lost Tales. The Book of Lost Tales has a, a very prominent um, uh, has a very prominent um, frame narrative, right? The human sailor who finds himself, uh, you know, on Toleresia and meets the elves and is there told all of the stories one by one. And so the Book of Lost Tales is called the Book of Lost Tales because the, the tales were lost because the humans didn't know about them, because the elves took them with them to Toleresia and... But these lost tales have been rediscovered by the human mariner, whose the first name was Ariel, E-R-I-O-L. And then, of course, Tolkien decided to change his name to Alfwina, which is just Old English for elf friend. Um, so, and that, by the way, itself is a, a very interesting um, choice. Like, that is his, his choice to name him Alfwina, and there were a couple reasons why he wanted to name him Alfwina, to rename him Alfwina. Um, one reason, of course, is just by naming him Elffriend, um, he is kind of making this a, a more essential kind of part of his narrative, and um, if you remember back to discussions that we've had about the Notion Club papers as well, um, which was much later, of course, the Notion Club papers was written in the, what, in the 40s, when he was in the middle, like two-thirds of the way through, with writing um, The Lord of the Rings. Um, but anyhow, yeah, so the, uh, even even still in 1945 yeah, or so, um, he is, um, this concept of the human whose name means elf friend, which is what Elendil means, right? Um and uh uh you know it that 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 story is a narrative that he's still telling right a, a narrative that he still clearly loves even as late as 1945 and so we see him he continuing that and coming back with that right he's um the the original character ariel was much less developed like he just kind of shows up and there's no sense really of his story other than the fact that he's a wanderer he's you know he's a, a just kind of a an explorer, right? He he doesn't he doesn't really have a story. Doesn't have any kind of a clear story. Whereas Alfwina uh, gets a story and gets a background and he gets a historical sort of um, situation, right? And that's why his name is changed to an old English name because he's being historically situated in the history of England, right? So that he can uh, he is not only a convenient character who's there to interview the elves and get told the stories. Uh, in the in the in the Book of Lost Tales itself, but of course, then he's also going to bring it back to England and be the you know the 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 link between these tales that had been lost and uh, the memories of these stories that are going to linger in um, in England, especially. Um, but. Um, yeah, anyhow, so, um, yeah, Scotty does say, that it, it's Ariel uh, version when he says that he's, um, uh, he's a, it doesn't say, I, I think descendant isn't the word, um, 
what is he? He's a something of Arendel. Connect, it connects him with Arendel. But as I recall, I think that he's not making a genealogical claim so much as a, a like a spiritual connection, right? Like in the sense of, um, you know, he's um, he has sort of the spirit of Arendel, right? Um, he's the he's he's a he's he's a wanderer, a mariner, an adventurer, an explorer, like Arendel was. But anyhow, um, so. Um, yeah, exactly. A mythic spiritual connection. That's exactly right. Um, Tomas, yeah, exactly. So Tomas says, I would have much preferred the frame narrative in which it was Bilbo who wrote it in Rivendell after getting all the stories from the elves. Well, yeah. No, I mean, that's also, um, in a sense, kind of in play, actually. Uh, there's a complicated textual history, I think, that we can see him developing and thinking through. Um of course, Tomas, that that frame narrative, or rather that textual narrative, that that narrative of textual provenance, right, um, which culminates ultimately in the Red Book, right, the original Red Book, the one that had Bilbo's translations from the Elvish appended to it, like it was supposed to. Obviously, I mean, who would even be interested in reading the Lord of the Rings without? The translations from the Elvish also. I mean, that those two things are a package deal is like a no-brainer, right? Um, but um, uh, anyhow, uh, the 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 Alphalina story is significant. But again, going back to my my larger point, my larger point was it seems clear that Tolkien never dropped the idea of a frame narrative. Um, in retelling the stories of the older days. He was never interested. Okay, that's a stronger statement. Um, it does not seem that Tolkien was ever planning to present to his readers a mere collection of ancient stories, of elvish stories, without context or frame. How those stories were preserved and how they came down among us, and the perspective from which they're being told, was always a part of the story. And we've already been noticing this, right, especially with the Grey Annals in our recent discussions. As we can see, when he goes back to the Annals in 1951 and starts drafting the Grey Annals, which are a revision of the Annals of Beleriand that he had begun writing in 1937, he does so from within a particular narrative frame, right? And we talked about that a great deal, that whole perspective of the Sindar, right? Let's, let's, in other words, he was trying to make that a, like, a legitimate and in a sense an independent historical perspective, right? He was not just speaking as an omniscient narrator, telling us about what happened in the first age. Instead, he was designing a fictional textual collection which each of which has sources and authors and a collector who brought them all together and in a story about how they ultimately get transmitted to us um christopher cut all of that stuff and I understand why he did it. Christopher did not want to write stuff himself. 
he wanted to present his father's work. And the fact is that although we get lots of little bits and fragments like this, and it's perfectly clear what Tolkien's ultimate intention was, like, it seems to me anyway, perfectly clear, that his intention was to maintain, to develop, to preserve a frame, a textual frame, um, for the Silmarillion stories. Yet nevertheless, he doesn't, um, he never finished it. He didn't write it. There isn't enough of it for Christopher to be able to bring it all together and present it as a coherent package with the published Silmarillion. So he cut it. Rather than adding more himself to round it out, um, following, you know, either what he knew uh, his father intended or what he could surmise that his father intended, um, he pursued his traditional course, um, you know, his sort of... Uh, 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 stated um, and consistently, generally, consistently maintained um, editorial um, approach to doing the Silmarillion. And just if Tolkien didn't write it, if he didn't finish it, he didn't include it. He didn't present it. So we, lo so we lost it. And therefore, when we're reading the history of Middle-earth, I love finding these bits. The bits that Tolkien did write, not enough to include uh, and to make up a complete frame for the published Silmarillion. And yet, we can clearly see um, where he was heading, right? Um, These matters, which are not in the Penas of Pingalot, I have taken from the Dorganas Yaur, the account of the shapes of the lands of old that Torhir Ifant made, and is kept in Eresea, that those who will may understand more clearly, maybe, what is later said of their princes in their wars, quoth Alfuina. So you see the different layers at work here. So Alfuina is still our frame, uh, uh, is still our frame editor, collector, right? He is still our primary transmitter. Um, so he's, well, for now, he is an outer layer, right? And so he's commenting on this. He is commenting on where these matters are taken from. So when he says, I have added and taken, that's Alfwina speaking, right? Um, that's Alfwina speaking, and he says... Um, Oh, yeah, this is, I believe, the only reference to Torhir Ifond. Um, yeah. Uh, not sure. Again, so you see, like, it, there's not enough to present it fully and coherently as a frame. Um, again, I, I understand why Christopher did it. It's just one of the things I lament. Um, do you know, there's a sense in which I think I might put it on my top five list. That is, top five list of things I really wish that Tolkien had completed that he didn't complete. Um, uh, the revised and expanded tour is number one on my list. Um, very high on my list, probably coming in at number three, uh, is the uh, Fall of Arthur. Um, but number two might be the frame of the Silmarillion. Um, I would have loved to see what him complete that and show us his 
plan, like how he was planning to contextualize the Silmarillion, even if he didn't complete all the Silmarillion things, um, for him to have done a full sort of version of the Tuor is number one. Yeah, you know, yeah, Tuor is my uh, the 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 Tuor the novel length uh, Tuor and Gondolin story that he began and we get at the beginning of the of Unfinished Tales, um, and which ends as soon as Tuor gets there. Right, that's that's my number one. That's my number one. But um, uh, okay. Anyway, um, yeah, <laughs> the full lay of Arendel in alliterative verse. Yeah, well. I'm not talking about things he never even really got around to. Right? I'm talking about the things that he um, like really started and didn't finish. Lay of Lathian? Yeah, it's up there. That's probably top five. Probably top five. It's hard. In, in some ways, it's more tantalizing, right? Because we have so much of it. I mean, we have... Um, we have a very big percentage of it. Like, I think well over 50%. So, um, in its way... I could see somebody making an argument to say that's why it's high on the list because it's so close. And I get that. Um, but to some extent, I go and I compare that to tour, which is such a tease. Oh man. Um, but, um, anyway, um, the coming back here then to this text. So let's look at what he is. Um, uh, let's look at what he is doing here. Um, what he's doing here is so Alfwina is talking about his own work as an editor. So again, we've got Alfwina outside the work. And he's pointing to the sources that he is using. And by the way, this is a um, uh, this is a significant um, this is a significant change. Um, this is a significant change from the early concept of his frame. In the early concept of his frame, they were tales, right? That is to say, he was, like, they were oral tales. Um, he was listening to the elves tell stories, um, and he was recording those. And he was, so he was the text. Here, notice what he, he's, now Alfwina is like a scholar, right? Now Alfwina is not just going to Taloresia, meeting folks and hearing their first or second hand, in some cases, accounts. Like, for instance, he heard the story of the music of the Einar, not firsthand from the Valar themselves, but secondhand from the Eldar who had heard it from the Valar. Um, but, um, He's not just hearing stories and writing them down. Now he is collating texts. He has he has he has the penas of Pengalod. Um, Pengalod, who is the scholar from Gondolin, who ends up in the Bay of Balar, not in the Bay, you know, at the settlement by the Bay with Eärendil, um, and then retires uh, to Taloresia, and then we have this other text, the Dorganas Yaur, the Dorganas Yaur, by the mysterious Torhir Ivant made and that, that he made and is kept in Eresea. So we've got these two pieces of Elvish scholarship from 
presumably two different perspectives, which now Alfwina is reading, collecting things from, and producing his own sort of edition, right? So Alfwina is, you know, in a different line of work than he used to be. But again, notice the so we have two layers, essentially. You could call it three, but I, I would call it two different layers of text narrative here, right? You've got the writings of Pengalod and the writings of Torhir Ivant. And then you've got Alfwina, who is drawing on both of those and editing a larger account, right? And that's the text that we're getting. Oh, wait, except that itself is being transmitted through a modern translator, right? This is where I really wish he would have finished it. Um, would he have, in the end, um, done a thing like he did in the prologue of The Lord of the Rings, where he, Tolkien, adopts the persona of a modern researcher who came across the work of Alfwina? Um, and, um, you know, I, I, especially thinking about the, the stuff that Tolkien was so fascinated by during that period in the 40s when he was thinking about, um, when he was thinking about Numenor and he was thinking, he was writing things like King Horn, remember, um, and um, the, that long poem, um, the Imram. We, we, we read a bunch of these uh, before in earlier sessions. Um, but you remember that was the time when he was really interested in how the story of Numenor becomes embedded in the mythic consciousness of medieval Europe, right? And there, you know, the stories of these like foundling children that came from across the sea, which of course connects into Beowulf itself with shield chafing and the opening lines and all that kind of stuff. Um, so he, uh, and he begins to, sort of take this, these traditional story, you know, actual legends and stories um, from, you know, especially these Germanic stories that he knew so well from the Middle Ages and um, integrating that into his own mythic imagination. Um, and anyway, so would he have written this whole like essay? Would he have adopted this persona of like a scholar of Germanic literature who has either come across, you know, a lost copy of Alfwina's book, or perhaps reconstructed Alfwina's book through conflicting manuscripts and, you know, uh, evidence of influence of these stories in other poems and all. I mean, there are so many things, right? Um, uh, so many things. Um, but uh, anyhow, so... Uh, this is, uh, that's what I, that's what I'm so fascinated by, by this. But, but again, it's not just that I find the frame itself to be a really fascinating story. It also introduces a whole new layer of interest in the text, right? It, it puts the entire text on the, on a different footing. You remember that I was talking about you know, we, 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 we talked about this a lot with the gray annals, right? When we see the frame in which he's putting the text, the gray annals text was stuff we'd all read many times before in the Silmarillion, right? But when we read it in that context, all of a sudden th these things start to pop, 
that we never really thought of. I know I never, never really thought of and never really saw before um, because we're seeing it from this new point of view. What are the ways in which the Alfwina frame help us to think about things in that way? The number one thing, and I've talked about this before, when you read the Silmarillion, not as the work, not as the words of an omniscient narrator, but as the words of a, an elf historian or an elf tale teller, as mediated through the scholarly work of Alfwina, and then transmitted on, and later translated, um, it puts the entire thing in a different light. Um, certainly, the Aino Lindel, and then it perhaps translated by Bilbo Chad, it is certainly possible that the Hobbit um, angle, right, uh, uh, you know, that ultimately it's going to be channeled through the Red Book uh, as well. Very possible. Very possible. Um, all of these things greatly influence the story. When you hear the narrator speaking in the Silmarillion, when you realize like who that is, like that this is a person speaking to somebody else, total huge change. So I, I always perk up. You know, I've talked about how I perk up when I see places where he writes it once and then crosses out and rewrites it. I love doing comparisons of those. I think those are really fun and really revealing. Um, moments like this, where we see evidence of the frame and how he's thinking about the frame. Alfwina as scholar here, comparing two different elvish works and using one to supplement the other, right? Notice by framing it the way that he does there, these matters which are not in the penos of Pengalot, I have added and taken from the Dorgonus Yawar, right? That those who may understand, that those who will may understand more clearly maybe what is said of their later set of their princes and their wars. In other words, notice he, he's not exactly throwing shade at Pengalot, but he's saying that this stuff is, that this isn't in the penos of Pengalot. So if you just take Pengalot's perspective, you're missing stuff, and you might not understand clearly the things that are said later on. Um, you need to kind of bring the Dargonus Naur, the, the Dargonus Naur into it, right? That's a really interesting editorial commentary by Alfwina, right? What does it suggest to us about Pengalod and Pengalod, either Pengalod's frame of knowledge or his bias or what, right? Um, so anyway, it's, again, I love this stuff. So we'll, we'll see some more of this, uh, some more of this later on. Um, yeah, oh. Yeah, Graham is saying the providence of these stories coming through Bilbo allows the introduction of Manish or Numenorean influence. Well, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, Alfwina kind of bypasses that to some extent, right? Because we're just like directly communicating from, um, uh, you know, Toleresia to a human within our recent history, right? You know, Alfwina, who is a a man from England, um, you know, in the Anglo-Saxon period. So um, recent compared to Numenor, for instance, right? Um, but of course, there are also other textual traditions. Um, Pengalod's writings were also read and collected 
by Elendil. Remember, there are several references to Elendil, to the scholarly work that Elendil did, and that one of the things that Elendil was important for, he's kind of important anyway, um, but one of the really important things that Elendil did was gather together as many as he could of the writings of Pengoad and this, these histories of the Elder Days and bring them with him to Middle-earth when he left Numenor and thus transmit uh, the these accounts of the Elder Days, but of course also infuse them with a Numenorean perspective and perhaps bias, right? Um, but um, anyway... Um, yeah, okay, uh, David Michael, uh, great question. So um, how um, how does Tolkien conceive of Alphawina getting to Talaresia and back at this point in his writing process? By ship, by ship. The, the, the idea, um, of course, this is, this is post, the, the world is round, right? So the, the mythic idea of Alphawina is that he's a, he's a mariner, right? He's a, I was about to say a random dude, but he's not. Alfwina is a non-random dude um, who is sailing on his ship, and his ship finds the straight road. That's exactly it, David Michael. That's exactly it. He finds himself on the straight road and ends up at Tolaresia and is like, uh, what happened? Right. Um, like, at first I was on the sea, then I was, like, in orbit, and, like, I, I have no idea what just happened there. But no, that's exactly the idea that for some, somehow... And for some reason, um, he finds the straight road, the lost road, uh, and ends up at Tolaresia. Now, I said he's a non-random dude, because on the one hand, you know, you could kind of say he's nobody special. Like, he's not he's not Arendo. You know, he's not like on a quest. He's not the a prophesied messianic figure like Arendo was. Um, but he's also not random, because... He doesn't get the name Alfwina after he arrives. Like, that's not what his friends at home started calling him after he comes back from Elfland with a book of stories, right? And now they're just like, oh, yeah, this is like, oh, it's, it's Elfriend, right? Um, you know, coming to uh, tell us about our Lord and Savior, Eärendil. Like, that's not how it worked. He was named Alfwina prior to go. His name was Elfriend before he finds the uh the the lost road at least here I, i'm going on what we what we've seen him when he's doing this stuff it's i'm especially i'm thinking first of the lost road the story that he begins writing uh in the in the mid 30s early 30s like what was it 32 33 something like that he's writing the lost road and then when he returns to um when he returns to the concept of Alfuina and this whole idea of a human, a later, you know, modern in the sense of not Middle Earth times, right? Um, uh, known European history times figure, medieval figure, um, who finds the Lost Road during the Notion Club Papers concept, right? Um, and uh, and all of this, there's. It's not just that he happens to be named Elf Friend, but that he, you know, again, if if the Notion Club paper stories and the Lost Road stories are any guide, the concept of the Alfwina character is that he he may have dreams. Indeed, he may even be, um, he may even be a, a, a descendant 
uh, like a reincarnation, some kind of connection um, of a previous thing of, of like a Lendil himself. Um, gets complicated there, and we're not going to go off on that uh, crazy tangent. But um, yeah, um, Tomas and um, David Michael. Tomas is asking, is there any relationship between the straight road and the Bifrost um, in Norse mythology? Yes. David Michael says, or the actual rainbow? Yes. Both. Absolutely. This is much more explicit in the Book of Lost Tales with the rainbow road, um, which is the path. There there used to be an explanation. They, Tolkien used to have an answer to the question. How does Orome get to Middle-earth? Right When Orome wants to, you know... Orme, you're Orme, you're kicking around in Valinor, right? And you're like, things are a bit slow around Valmar these days. Think I'm going to go over to Middle-earth and chase the monsters around for a little while and sound my horn, right? Um, uh, he, um, how does he get there? Does Nahar swim the ocean? Does he run across the surface of the ocean? Does he teleport? Like, can he just port himself somehow? Um, to me, you know, is, is there... Is there I, I, we don't really know. We're not given the answer to that question in the later versions of the mythology. But in the earlier version, the Book of Lost Tales, we are. And it's the rainbow. There's a rainbow road. Like, it's there's an arc, an arch through the sky. It's a rainbow arch. That, that's what he, you know, takes over across. Um, but... Um, Yes, yes. Um, there's um, uh, lots of stuff there in the early stuff. And yes, it should make you think of the Bifrost. Uh, absolutely. Um, so anyway, uh, he, he, he backs off from that in the post-Book of Lost Tales stuff. Um, but it was definitely it was definitely there. So uh, if you are remembering, if you're thinking about the Bifrost and the rainbow and all of that stuff when you are reading about the Lost Road, it's not the same thing. Um, but you're not totally wrong either to think about it that way. Okay. Um, let's keep going. All right. Um, this is a long passage, but I'm, I think I'm going to talk about it only briefly. Here we see him continuing to work through an idea that we saw creeping in at various points of the annals, uh, you'll remember. And Nivrost, that is what will later be called Nivrost, uh, the original land of Turgon by the sea before he moves into Gondolin. And Nivrost was held by some to belong rather to Beleriand than to Hithlam, for it was a milder land, watered by the wet winds from the sea and sheltered from the north and east whereas Hithlam was open to cold north winds. But it was a hollow land, surrounded by mountains and great coast cliffs, higher than the plains behind, and no river flowed thence. Wherefore, there was a great mere amidmost, and it had no certain shores, being encircled by wide marshes. Lenaiwen was the name of that mere, because of the multitude of birds that dwelt there, of such as love tall reeds and shallow pools. Now, at the coming of the Noldor, many of the Grey Elves, akin to those of the Thalas, lived still in Nivrost, nigh to the coasts, and especially about Mount, about Mount Taras in the southwest. For to that place Olmo and Ase had been wont to come in days of old. All that folk took Turgon for their lord, and so it came to pass that in Nivrost 
the mingling of Noldor and Sindar began sooner than elsewhere, and Turgon dwelt long in those halls that he named Vinyamar, under Mount Taras, beside the sea. There it was that Olmo afterwards appeared to him. Um, okay, so... Remember, what, you, what you may remember from the Grey Annals that we were kind of tracing was one of those changes that I was really interested in. Because what we were seeing was, apparently, the evolution of the mythic significance of Gondolin. Gondolin was the refuge of the Noldor. It was like the last, the last Noldor place, right? Um, and you may remember that in the Grey Annals, the f- the passages as first written tend- tended to say that Gondolin only contained Noldor. It was like a 100% Noldor, Noldorin enclave. And again, that was its mythic importance. It was the, It is the last stronghold of the Noldor. Um, and so the fall of Gondolin means the destruction of the last realm of the Noldor. Now, it still means that, right? But the significance of it is altered, is broadened. Um, Gondolin, which, of course, you may know, remember, was the first of the stories of the Book of Lost Tales that Tolkien wrote and finished, apparently. Um, there are a lot of ways in which the Fall of Gondolin story is really the beginning of the stories of Tolkien's Legendarium. And that concept, that the last hope of the Noldor, the last hope and refuge and safety of the Noldor was Gondolin. And the whole story of the fall of Gondolin is about how that final stronghold is betrayed um, and then ultimately destroyed. Um, And... That initial concept um, of the significance of that to the Noldor specifically, that the, that Gondolin was sort of the culmination of the story of the Noldor in Beleriand, the final tragic end um, of the story of the Noldor. Um, that was the kind of the core of the idea um, of... And that was the the sort of central mythic significance of Gondolin and the Gondolin story in the beginning. And as I say, the evidence suggests that even now in 1951, after writing The Lord of the Rings, when Tolkien is returning to this stuff in the Grey Annals and in the Quento, he is um, he's still thinking about Gondolin in those terms. He went out of his way to make the point that only the Noldor lived there, right? He still wanted it to be the uh, the Gondolin story, right? Um, and he changed his mind. And we were watching him change his mind as he went, right? As he went back and altered those passages, not just single words, but whole sentences and passages, which suggested or stated plainly um, that only the that that Gondolin was a one hundred percent Noldorin enclave, um, and instead said that Sindar and Noldor dwelt there together. Notice that this passage, this isn't crossed out, right? Um, here we get the story, the origin story, the story of how it is that 
Sindar ended up in Gondolin too. And not just a few token Sindar ending up in Gondolin, right? Um, it came to pass that in Nivros, the mingling of Noldor and Sindar began sooner than elsewhere, right? This is, he changes his mind. This, and this is a huge turn, right? He's not just saying, well, it's okay. We can include the Sindar too. It's fine. He instead decides, instead of making Gondolin the final bastion of Noldordom, right? Instead, he says, no, 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 I want Gondolin instead. I'm going to change the story of Gondolin. I'm going to make it into the most cosmopolitan of Elvish cities. I want to make the story of Gondolin the tragedy of the place where the Noldor and the Sindar came together most and best. Um we see the tension between the Sindar and the Noldor and lots of other places, and there's blame on both sides, right, for those disagreements and for those attitudes. Um, so Gondolin becomes the elvish melting pot, right? It becomes the, uh, the, the, the place which is exemplary. And, you know, so again, it's, it's, a, it's a significant pivot, right? It becomes exemplary among the elvish kingdoms, for being the place where the Sindar and the Noldor blended most and best. And that gives a different color to this, the tragedy of the fall of Gondolin. It now becomes the story and the tragedy of all the elves and not just the Noldor anymore. And I'm not sure that this passage itself is the turning point, but it is interesting to me that although we were seeing all that stuff being done in crossouts back in the Grey Annals, we're not seeing that in a crossout here. Um, so whether this is the moment that he makes that decision or whether he had made that decision and this came after that, we don't, we don't really know. Um, but it is interesting to me that we're seeing sort of evidence of how this kind of, um, how this kind of came about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's, um, let's keep going. All right. Time for dwarves. Finally. Before we start this, um, before we start this, I want to do a little recap. Let's make sure we remember what happened. Um, who are the dwarves in the Book of Lost Tales? When we're first introduced to dwarves in Tolkien's world, does anybody remember where and, and how? Who are the dwarves? Who are the dwarves? Well, Abelard, that's actually version, that's Dwarf 2.0. Dwarf 1.0, um, we're even, even further back than that. Abelard is saying they're merchants. That's the second version. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the shaping of Middle-earth. That's like the sketch of the mythology version. Um, the 1928 sketch. Yeah, Chad, exactly. They're, they're bad guys. They're like orcs. They're children of, of Morgoth. They are listed, we first come across them, listed in the, the list of the, oh, what is it, the Umunyar, uh, I might be butchering the word, I'm not remembering it clearly. Um, but the list of the, what are called the children of Morgoth. Um, the orcs, orcs, trolls, uh, dwarves, they're in the list, right? Um, they're simply bad guys. They're simply bad guys. Um, and that's always very jarring. <laughs> <laughs> to people who really love, um, uh, who really love the dwarves, 
Then, when he comes back to it, when he comes back around, so keep in mind now, um, the st- I, I, I was talking last week about meme, right? The story of meme. Uh, and how in the original version, like in the Book of Lost Tales version, Meme was the father of all dwarves. He was the uh, he was he was the original dwarf, right? Um, the eldest father of all dwarves, and he was a bad guy. I mean, he was just um, uh, uh, he was he was an unpleasant character. And then he gets killed, and then he lays a really potent curse on the treasure, and the curse of Meme ends up screwing up the whole rest of Beleriand, right? Um, so, anyhow, that's that's the original version of the dwarves, and they are no good at all. Then, in the second version, when he comes back to them, he sort of backs off. He doesn't anymore say that the dwarves are children of Morgoth. Um, they're, they become free agents, but they're still not great. They're merchants. Um, this is the one Abelard I think that you're remembering. Um, they're merchants, but they're war profiteers. They're selling to both sides. They make arms and armor for the elves, but they also make arms and armor for the dwarves. Um, and um, yeah, well, actually, uh, Jacob, don't think about Aule yet because uh, we're still a ways away from the story of the Silmarillion story of we're going to get there, right? In fact, we're, we're, we're on our way there already. Um, but the fully developed story of the fashioning of the dwarves, the, of, the, of Aule and Yavanna chapter of the Silmarillion is quite late. Um, the Aule and Yavanna chapter is one of the latest written chapters of all of the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion, in fact. Um, so we still haven't gotten to it yet. I mean, if you think about it, um, by this point, we've gotten a lot of the text of most of the published Silmarillion. I mean, there are very few chapters in the published Silmarillion of which we've not ever seen any of the original text yet in any of, you know, between the annals, different versions of the annals, the old Quentin Olderinwa, you know, uh, the old Quentin Silmarillion, this new Quentin Silmarillion, right? With all this stuff that we're reading, um, we've gotten at least a version Right of pretty much every chapter in um, uh, in the published Silmarillion, but the Aule and Yavanna chapter we've not we've not gotten even a fragmentary version or an early version of that story yet. Um, anyhow, and that's going to be important. That's going to be important because what we are seeing here in this dwarf section of the War of the Jewels, the reason why I, I want to pause here and spend some time with Tolkien's dwarves and Tolkien's concept of his dwarves, is this is a moment when we see Tolkien sitting down and doing some world building. He's going to be figuring out the dwarf. He's going to be sort of answering the dwarf questions and solving the dwarf problems. Um, or trying to, in any case. Um, okay, so again, Dwarves 2.0. They are, they're not enemies, they're not bad guys, but they're not trustworthy. Um, you can't rely on them because they will ally themselves with orcs in a heartbeat. I mean, at least they sell to them, just as they sell to the good guys. Um, they're certainly not. Uh, they're certainly not good guys. Um, not to be trusted. 
And that is what dwarves were when he wrote The Hobbit. When Thorin and company show up on Bilbo Baggins' doorstep in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, that is the concept of dwarves that he had. And you can see this concept of dwarves coming out again and again and again. Um, when you read one of, one of the really fun things, I, I've said that going back and looking at the history of Tolkien's dwarves over the course of the history of Middle-earth is jarring for people. But the reward of doing so, one of the rewards of doing it is it will transform your reading of The Hobbit. When you don't read The Hobbit from the framework of The Lord of the Rings, that is, by the time we've read The Lord of the Rings, we read Glowen through the lens that we have adopted by getting to know Gimli, right? Um, rather than the other way around. There are all of those passages... Um, Yes, exactly, Arthur. Um, there are all of those passages in um, The Hobbit which just pop off the page when you look at the context of Tolkien's world building in which, that, you know, that moment in history in which he was writing that story. Exactly, Arthur, that passage that says that Thorin and company, um, dwarves are not heroes, uh, and Thorin and company are not all that bad, uh, if you don't expect too much. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, think about... Um, think about... Um, Smaug's comments about dwarves. Right? The superior knowledge that Smaug claims about the nature of dwarves and how he believes that Bilbo is um, has some surprises coming to him and Bilbo's uncomfortable feeling that he gets when Smaug says this, right? Um, Smaug is not just slandering the dwarves. Smaug is, as a general thing, not at all wrong, right? Um, and the doubts that are planted in Bilbo's mind are not true of Thorin and company. But they're very plausible. They're very believable. And of course, they're also almost immediately confirmed by Thorin's own actions and his, his increasing greed. Um, the falling out between Thorin and Bilbo um, is, becomes the kind of thing that, frankly, we should have seen coming. Bilbo should have seen coming. Right. Um, and it also means that the change of heart that Thorin has on his deathbed and his heroic and self-sacrificial charge um, are ex just they redouble in significance because this is Thorin Oakenshield showing that he's not just another dwarf, that he is not just one of those kinds of dwarves that Smaug isn't wrong about, right? Um, it is the Hobbit itself, I think. It is the Hobbit itself. And keep in mind, like, it's not even until the change in tone that happens in chapter 10 of The Hobbit, 
when the dwarves crawl out of the barrels at Lake Town, that Thorin's own stature rises. Um, the dwarves are pretty comical and often sort of questionable characters all the way through the book to that point. Um, but anyway, um, I believe that writing The Hobbit is one of the primary things that changed Tolkien's minds about the dwarves. I think that it's, it's Thorin's deathbed, his deathbed conversation with Bilbo, that does more than anything else to make Tolkien rethink dwarves and say, you know what? At the very least, the dwarves aren't going to be just shady, right? There are clearly good... There are some dwarves who are heroes and who can be heroes. And his ideas about them change and begin to change. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so, Arthur, uh, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to dwell on this too much because it's a huge topic and uh, there's a lot to it and there's no way I'm going to be able to do it justice without going through and looking at all of the, um, you know, the primary texts related to this. Um, and we don't have the time or scope for it now, but I want to address the, the connection between dwarves and Jews, um, which is made um, and, and a lot of people talk about a lot. Um, Tolkien made that connection. Um, said that the dwarves were like the Jews. Um, and th this has um, um, caused a lot of eyebrow raising in many readers uh, and uh, uh, from Tolkien's lifetime on through now. I said, I don't want to, we, we, we can't really talk about the whole thing. What I will say, it used to be 10 years ago, I heard very few people talking about this. This was not uh, something that was even generally known to a whole lot of people, it seems to me. Um, I mean, I'm not saying nobody ever knew it. That has only just recently been discovered. I'm saying when I talk to Tolkien fans, you know, I, it's one, um, one of the effects of Tolkien professoring for as long as I've been Tolkien professoring now, right? I mean, I've been, I've been doing this for almost 15 years. So it's been almost 15 years that I've been having you know, multiple conversations a week with, uh, you know, lots of people from all over the place about Tolkien. Um, one of the things that has happened um, in those 15 years is I've seen, you know, particular things kind of come and go, like areas of interest or, you know, particular questions used to come up a lot and don't come up so much anymore. Or, um, you know, now things come up that never really used to come up 10 years ago and that kind of thing. Um, so this is one that's been it's been a, a hot topic recently, comparatively. This almost never came up 15 years ago, um, but it comes up now quite a lot. Um, and it's become a kind of it's stated as a kind of truism. People will just throw out a statement like, well, Tolkien based the dwarves on the Jews. Um, what I would say is that's a massive oversimplification of the situation. Um and I am not, it may sound like I'm trying to deny that or kind of distance myself or even distance Tolkien from that because it's uncomfortable. Um, because, of course, when you do look at especially his depiction of the older 
um, uh, dwarves who were merchants and who were just who had a very high idea of the value of money. Remember from the Hobbit? That's another line. Um, uh, anyway, I, 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 there are many many ways in which it's really easy to point to some pretty broad uh, and uh, unattractive anti-Semitic stereotypes that Tolkien seems to be appealing to in connecting the dwarves to the Jews. Um, and so that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And so, but, but I, I want to make it clear. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to avoid the discomfort of that. Some of that is real. Some of that is real. Um, I think that there are, I think it's, it's, I think it's unquestionable that there were, um, that there were anti-Semitic stereotypes that were activating some of these connections that Tolkien was making. What I do think is important, though, the thing that I think is overstated, significantly overstated, is I've heard people talk about this recently as if it's a given that when Tolkien is describing dwarves, he's just like picturing stereotyped Jews in his head. Like as if that was almost as if like the dwarves are an allegory for Jews in some sense. Um, and I do not believe that that is the case at all. Um, I think that the connection, again, Tolkien made the connection himself. It's not something imposed on the text. Um, I'm not in any way trying to deny that. What I do deny, or rather I should say what I don't believe myself, is that it was something that was hugely important to him. I don't think he was thinking about the Jews all the way through. I, like, so when he describes, um, I, I've seen people point to his description of the dwarves liking money and, and, and being merchants and everything um, in the Quentin Olderin was say, uh, that version 2.0 of the dwarves. I've seen people point to those descriptions and say, that's anti-Semitic. And I'm like, no, actually, it's not anti-Semitic. Um, it would be anti-Semitic if he were saying that about Jews. He's saying that about dwarves. He's saying about these people. Now, it's true that later on, he says that he point. He says that there are some similarities between them, um, though those are not the similarities that he emphasizes. Um, but does that necessarily mean that, like, that was the central thing on his mind the whole time? I don't believe that. I just don't. Um, so. I think that, again, although the connection exists and although it's a very uncomfortable connection in lots of ways, um, and I, again, I'm not trying to smooth that over, um, I, d I don't think that it's central. I, I, um, you can very much read Tolkien's depiction of dwarves, I think, without primarily focusing on that. It's, it's a separate question, um, I think. But anyway, okay. So I did want to address that. I didn't want to. I didn't. Want, I didn't want to leave that unsaid. But we don't see him making any of those kinds of connections here. And um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Abelard says the guy who 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 despised allegory. Well, anyway, who cordially disliked allegory wouldn't do something so as so simplistic as the dwarves are Jews. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and Tomas, I absolutely agree. Most of Tolkien's characterization of his dwarves seems to come uh, directly more from Norse myth. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I disbelieve it. Um, t 
to say that the things that he's saying, you would almost have to say that, like, the dwarf character... Oh, blanking on his name. What's the name of the dwarf in the Nibelungen lead who, you know, the story of the Nibelungs, who curses the, you know, the treasure, um, you know, the sort of meme figure there. I'm blanking on the dwarf's name, the Norse dwarf's name, Germanic dwarf's name, <laughs> depending on which version of the story you're reading. Um, anyway, like you would almost have to, exactly, Abard, you would almost have to say that that Norse myth is itself anti-Semitic, right? Um, Alba. Alberich, yes, exactly. You don't have to say that Alberich is, uh, you know, the depiction of Alberich is is deliberately anti-Semitic, right? In order to say that, which just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, uh, and Arthur, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the other things um, we have to remember. This is Tolkien that we're talking about, right? So I I also do believe that one of the primary connections that he was making between dwarves and Jews was philological, was linguistic. The fact that he was envisioning the dwarf language to be a Semitic language, I'm not saying that that explains everything. I'm not saying that there isn't a kind of disturbing consonance between many of the things that are said about the dwarves and some, uh, you know, standard anti-Semitic stereotypes. Um, Again, that's there. That's there, and he made the connection. So, you know, like, it's... That's that's open for discussion, but um, the linguistic angle is clearly something that really mattered to him a lot. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay, so let's get back to the dwarves now. So, so we got dwarf 1.0, children of Melkor. Dwarf 2.0, free agent merchants, not children of Melkor, but not admirable. Dwarf 3.0, I think the first ever Dwarf 3.0 is Thorin Oakenshield on his deathbed, right? This is when we go from dwarves are not heroes to dwarves might be able to be heroes, actually. Maybe, maybe the, you know, the arrow's pointing in the other direction here with dwarves post-writing of The Hobbit, right? And of course, Gimli, uh, son of Glowen, is, he's... I think Dwarf 3.0, right? He is the, the poster child of Dwarf 3.0. If, uh, if, if Thorin Oakenshield, if dying Thorin Oakenshield was the prototype of Dwarf 3.0, Gimli is the, you know, uh, the main show, sh- showroom model, right, of, uh, of Dwarf 3.0. Um, but, but now what? Where does he go after that? We're now in the 50s. We're post-Lord of the Rings. He wrote Gimli's character years ago now. Where is he going next? What do we see here in the Quintus Silmarillion? Is that the petty dwarves? That's Well, that's interesting. Are the petty dwarves dwarf, dwarf 4.0? Um, by the way, this begins the character of Meme and the identification of Meme, the reemergence of Meme uh, in the narrative of Turin suggests, I don't think that Meme is dwarf 4.0. I think meme, I think the petty dwarves are very likely Tolkien trying to like have his cake and eat it too, right? From a narrative perspective, 
he loved the curse of meme. He loved the curse of meme so much that curse of meme, as I've said, became almost more important than the Silmarils themselves. Right. So when he's retelling the Turin story, the children of Horn, he doesn't want to lose that. Right. He, 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 he loves the meme angle. He loves the meme element. Um, so he wants to bring meme back. Um, but now he's in the world of dwarf 3.0 and the old meme, the old nasty, I'm going to curse stuff meme. Um, I'm going to curse things like that. Even Thorin and company th curse things. Um, uh, as I learned to read, uh, this was, a this was one of the quizzes, Chad, uh, that Chad gave me, uh, at Texmuth this weekend after, after he and Matt taught me Tengwar, um, there is Tengwar on the cover of The Hobbit. If if you have the uh, conversation uh, on the the conversations with Smaug, image Smaug on his gold pile, um, one of the urns along the side has Tengwar uh, on it, and uh, Chad was uh, quizzing me uh, by getting me to read the Tengwar, um, which is English, just in Tengwar, um, and uh, uh, I. I, I, I I passed the test. I translated the I translated the urn, um, and the urn is a is a is a curse. It's uh, cursing anyone who would steal the gold. Um, that that's still a dwarf thing. Of course, we see the dwarves, Thorn and company, in the Hobbit in chapter two, laying a curse on the treasure that they get from the trolls. Right? It's a dwarf thing. Um, but it's more. Could you imagine Gimli doing this? Could you imagine Gimli laying a curse on stuff? Right? Dwarf three it, it doesn't hang on them as well, right? They're, they're, again, the arrow's pointing up with the dwarves. They're now, they're heroes. They're always possibly heroes. At least some of them are heroes. And, um, you know, it's, um, but, uh, but anyway, he still wants meme. He still wants the curse. He still wants the nasty dwarf. And I, I honestly, I, I think the petty dwarves enable him to have, to build a world in which the dwarves are still dwarf 3.0 right but we still have some you know dwarf 1.0 maybe dwarf 2.0 floating around right those are the petty dwarves they're like uh like the older models uh that are still in circulation in the market meme might be more like uh dwarf 1.3 or something uh not exactly he's not all the way up to 2.0 i'm not sure um but um uh yeah yeah um, anyway, um, but, um, <laughs> Chad, my message to you today was mistake free. didn't make any mistakes in my tangware. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I only looked up one letter too. I was proud of myself. Anyway. Okay. Um, uh, getting distracted by my tangware training. Um, so, so this is the, con this is the context that we're in now. Let's actually, we're going to do it now. We're going to go to the text. Okay. Nogrod the Dwarf Mine. Above Dwarf Mine is penciled Dwarodelf. And in the margin again, Dwarodelf, Nogrod, was afar off in the east in the Mountains of Mist, and Belagost was in Arid Linden, south of Beleriand. At the head of the page, with a direction for insertion in the text after Belagost the Great Fortress, the following was written very rapidly. Greatest of these was Khaladum, that was after called in the days of its darkness Moria, and it was far off in the east in the mountains of mist. But Gabalgathol was on the east side of Arid Linden and within the reach of the elves. Okay, what is going on here? So, um, 
it may come as a bit of a shock. This may come as a bit of a shock here too, because he had already begun identifying. What's well, actually, I want to, let me skip ahead for a moment. Oh, oops. Hang on a second. Uh, I meant to move my slides around and I didn't. Hang on. Well, let me go to the handy summary here. Um, this is the handy summary that Christopher gives. I had meant to move this slide up and forgot. Sorry about that. Okay. Here's Christopher's summary of the names of the dwarf cities. Um, so what we're looking at here is the original form of the Quintus Silmarillion written in 1937. He goes back and edits it in between times. And then he's, this is the, the revised version. This is the one that we're looking at right now in 1951. So somewhere between 1937 and 1951, he does emendations. Like he writes on the original typescripts, right? And now he's doing a new version of it here in 1951. So in the 1937 version of the Quintus Silmarillion, right before he writes The Lord of the Rings, there are two dwarf cities, Nogrod and Belagost, the ones you know from the Silmarillion. Right, the two, um, the two that are in the Blue Mountains, Nogrod is identified in 1937. It's identified with Khazad-dûm, and it's still in the Blue Mountains, right? Belagost is called so it's called the Dwarf Mine. Nogrod is, it's called Khazad-dûm, Nogrod, the Dwarf Mine. Those are its three names, in Kuzdul, in uh, Sindarin, and in English, right? Khazad-dûm, Nogrod. Dwarf mine. Gabalgathal, Belagost, Great Fortress. So Silmarillion, people who know the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, this is really this is mind-bending, right? To think that the dwarves of Nogrod are the Longbeards. Kazadum is Nogrod. That's the identification that he makes in 1937. Remember, this is after he wrote The Hobbit, where Moria, the mines of Moria, right? It's, 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 he's been developing that concept, that story, right? He already had Nogrod and Belgost existed, so they predate the Quintus Silmarillion. They go back to the Quentin Ulderinwa and everything before. So he, he, um, he already had the idea of these two dwarf cities in the Blue Mountains. After he writes The Hobbit, he's like, okay. One of those is going to be the Mines of Moria. One of them is, is going to be Khazad-dûm. It's going to be Nogrod. Now, then he amends between 1937 and 1951. He writes on the original typescripts of the Quintus Silmarillion and, changes, and makes these the following changes. Khazad-dûm equals Nogrod equals Dwarodelf, later Moria. Gabagathal equals Belagost equals Great Fortress. Now, again, this is these, he didn't write this with the equal sign. This is Christopher's summary, right, bringing this stuff together. So based on the emendations of the manuscript, he is still identifying Nogrod with Khazad-dûm. Um, and he now changes the translation from Dwarf Mine to Dwarodelf. See when he's doing this, Right. 1937 was when he was translating it Dwarf Mine. Now he's calling it Dwarodelf. Well, of course, because that's how he translated it in The Lord of the Rings, right? So, presumably, he did this identification. He is still identifying Khazad-dûm with Nogrod after he wrote The Fellowship of the Ring, right? Later Moria. 
and Belagost is still the other. This is where, um, back to the one we were just looking at, um, greatest of these was Khazad Doom that was after in the days of its darkness, Moria, and it was far off in the east. Remember, this is a written very rapidly, right? To be inserted in, this is part of that emendation that Christopher was drawing from for that summary. And it was far off in the east in the mountains of mist. So he's decided, so originally, where we go? Here we go. Um, originally, Nogrod and Belagost in the Blue Mountains. One of them is identified as Khazad Doom. After post-Hobbit, pre-Lord of the Rings. Post-Lord of the Rings, he's like, no, Khazad Doom is not in the Blue Mountains. It's in the Misty Mountains. So he moves Nogrod. So now there are no longer two dwarf cities. Now Belagost is the only dwarf city in the Blue Mountains. So now, for this moment here, he is reconceiving all of the stories of Beleriand to contain only one dwarf city in the Blue Mountains, Belagost. Belagost is going to be the whole story now. And Nogrod is now Khazad-dûm. But now, in 1951, when he's doing this revised edition, he takes a further step. He says, nah, I still want two dwarf cities in the Blue Mountains. So I'm going to keep Nogrod and Belagost both. And I'm going to keep them separate. Um, and I'm, I'm going to make Khazad-dûm just a totally new thing. A totally different thing. Right? Um, and so you've got the new name to Munzahar, which is the new... Kuzdul name. It was Khazad-dûm before, right? It was the Kuzdul name of Nogrod. Now, so he's got to give Nogrod a new Kuzdul name, which is Tumunzahar, uh, and a new translation, which is Hollowbold. And Gabogathal is still Belagost, which is now translated Mikkelberg. Um, before it was translated Great Fortress. Now it's translated Mikkelberg. Anybody, um, uh, anybody notice anything fun there? about the English translation of Belagost? Um, anybody know what Mickelberg means? <laughs> it means... Um, I would approximately translate Mickelberg um, as Great Fortress, <laughs> actually. It's, it's just... It, just it, it means Great Fortress. Um, but it's building on Mikkel, like Mikkel Delving. Mikkel is the archaic modern English form um, which survived in place names like Mikkel Delving, um, like as in the ca a case like Mikkel Delving. Um, and um, it, uh, uh, but it comes from a Middle English and an Old English originally word, Mitchell, which just means big, uh, uh, great. Um, so he's taken Great Fortress and he's translated it into not, he's not translated it into Old English. He has rendered it as an English place name which is derived from old words. Do you see what I mean? Um, he's made it, instead of just calling it Great Fortress, which is just a more literal translation um 
he has given it a name which sounds like an English place name, sounds like a, an English place name of some antiquity, right? And which still means great fortress, um, but which now uh, sort of suggests this sort of old tradition and roots the idea of Belagost within a historical frame, a modern historical frame. In fact, I'm, I'm sensing the activity of Alfwina here in the name Mickelberg, actually. Um, anyway, and then we get uh, Nornhabar, which is the new elf name. He had to give Nogrod a new Kuzdul name. He has to give Kasadum now a new elf name, and he calls it Nornhabar, um, which, of course, is not the same as the form that he eventually gives it. Um, uh, anybody remember the published version of the, uh, uh, like the, 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 the later Elvish version of, uh, Khazad Doom? Um, Hathadrond, as I recall. But anyway, um, and then here Christopher just points out um, that uh, the name Tumunzahar appears in the Grey Annals, as we've seen, uh, but this is the first occurrence of the Elvish name Nornhabar. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, going back from his summary here. There we go. All right. In the text of the Quintus Silmarillion as written Nogrod, which goes back to the old tale of the Nauglifring from the Book of Lost Tales, the Book of the Nauglifring, that's the, uh, that's the curse of meme story, is a translation of Khazad-dûm, and the meaning is dwarf mine. Both Nogrod and Belagost, gabu are specifically stated to have been in the mountains east of Thargelion and were so placed in additions to the second map. In the Lord of the Rings, Khazad-dûm is Moria, and Nogrod and Belagost are ancient cities in the Blue Mountains. The notes in the margin of the Quintus Silmarillion just given must represent an idea that was not adopted, whereby Belagost remained in Arid Linden, but Nogrod slash Khazad-dûm was removed to the Misty Mountains, and Nogrod became the ancient Elvish name of Moria. Um, oh, by the way, one step that I sort of forgot there. Um, the word Khazad-dûm is not used in The Hobbit. It's just called Moria. Um as if it were the original name. And in fact, we know for a fact that Tolkien himself thought of the name Moria as the original name of the Halls of Durin. How do we know this? We have clear and explicit textual evidence that Tolkien first thought of, the, of Moria as the official and original name of Durin's halls, exactly, J.J., the writing on the doors. It is there for all to read on the, um, the doors on the, on the, on the, the west gate of Moria um, that Gandalf is trying to figure out how to get into in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, uh, it, it calls the place Moria. Um, uh, so, anyway. And, of course, even on Balin's tomb, that's seconded, right? Um, uh, here lies Balin, son of Fundin, lord of Moria. Um, it seems unlikely that Balin would have called himself that, right? Surely he would have called himself lord of Khazad-dûm? Um, but 
So anyway, the idea of Moria existed. In The Hobbit, it's called the Mines of Moria, right? Um, so the identification, you've got Moria on the one hand and Nogrod on the other hand, and he's bringing them together, right? Um, and then deciding later on to separate them. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur says Balin didn't call himself that. Well, no, but the, but it's carved on his tomb. We got the runes from his tomb, um, which do say Lord of Moria, I believe. And it is in the Book of Mazarbol as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it is clearly uh, an authentic expression of the, um, of those dwarves, right? They clearly thought of the place as Moria. Um, and why did they think of the place as Moria? Well, because Tolkien hadn't changed it yet. But again, this is um, this is so important, right? This is so important to realize. Do you see how much in flux the idea about the dwarves was, even as Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings? Right? It's not even a question of like he hadn't, you know, developed his ideas that he would later develop in The Lord of the Rings. He had like. As he was doing that, um, these ideas are still changing. The Lord of the Rings, people are, people tend to think of the Lord of the Rings as the end point, in a sense, right? That like uh, the dwarves that we get in in the Lord of the Rings are like the ultimate version, right? The final version of Tolkien's dwarves. They are not. And keep in mind when you read Appendix A, um, it is not. Well, okay, Appendix A is more complicated, as we'll see. Um, but keep in mind when you are reading Gimli and everything that Gimli says about dwarves in The Lord of the Rings, that the Aule and Yavanna chapter of the Silmarillion had not been written yet when, at any point, that Gimli is talking. At any point that dwarves are under discussion in the actual body of the text of the Lord of the Rings. This, the Alley and Yavanna chapter had not been written. So you cannot confidently apply the things that we learn about dwarves and their history to Gimli. Tolkien hadn't thought of that stuff yet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Yes, Chad, you're right. At the Council of Elrond, Glowen says, Moria, that of old we called Khazad-dûm. Yes, he does say that. And I... Could somebody look it up? I have a suspicion. I have a, I have a suspicion that that's a later addition. Just like, you know, Arwen is a later addition to that scene, right? Um, if somebody could find in Return of the Shadow the first version that we get of the conversation between Frodo and Glowen in Rivendell. I think it's in Return of the Shadow. It might be at the beginning of Treason of Isengard, but I think it's in Return of the Shadow. Um, uh, Chad, just search for Moria in Return of the Shadow and see if you can come up with a conversation. I want to see if it's in the earliest draft of that. I'll be a little surprised if it is. Because, again, this... 
uh, you know, Christopher's little schema, which I wish I had remembered to move the slide of. Um, so they were two are right next to each other. Um, this suggests the idea is there, but again, the actual body of the text in the Lord of the Rings, um, the way that the dwarves use Moria, um, why would they, why would Balin, especially like, and why would Balin's followers on Balin's tomb use the name Moria? Why would Durin, you know, why would Narvi use the name Moria uh, when, uh, when doing that? Okay, we're, all right, JJ's got it here. Um, okay, he wanted Dan to go back to Moria, or at least to allow him to found a colony there. Uh, as you know, Moria was the ancestral home of the dwarves of the race of Durin. There it is. No Khazad Doom. That does suggest to me that that phrase, Chad, Moria, that of old we called Khazad Doom, which is in the final, final text, I think he added that later on, which suggests that version... Hmm... Uh, version 2 here was probably um, because Khazad-dûm was Nagrod. That was always Nagrod. Nagrod was always Khazad-dûm. Um, Khazad-dûm is... So when when the name Khazad-dûm becomes attached to Moria, that's like an appropriation. As you can see, Nagrod... Nagrod had the name in the first place, in the Blue Mountains. Nagrod brings the name Khazad-dûm to the Misty Mountains, and then Nagrod goes back to the lonely to the Blue Mountains, leaving the name behind, right, is the history of the name of Khazad-dûm. Um, it's only that moment when Nagrod brings the name of Khazad-dûm to the Misty Mountains that it becomes connected with Borea, right? Um, so... Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's right. Fanar, you think that Celebrimbor was trolling Narvi, right? Yeah, no, it means Golden Palace or something. Yeah, no, it's, Mori is a great name. You love it, right? Like it's, uh, yeah, trust me. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. Um, but um, anyway, okay, okay. So, but do you see what I mean? If if the identification between Khazadum and Moria had already been made, it would... 100% not beyond the doors. And it would almost as certainly not be carved on Balin's tomb. And it would also very probably not be written in the in the Book of Mazarbal. Right? Um, but all of those things are true. And so therefore, I suspect that the... And um, the fact that in the very first draft of that conversation between Glowen and Frodo, Glowen does not make the identification, does not make the link between Khazad-dûm and Moria suggests to me even more firmly that still when he was writing at that stage, because remember, he got through all the Moria stuff, all those Moria references. It was at the tomb of Balin that he paused. That's one of the year-long gaps in the writing of the Lord of the Rings manuscript. So the first big push, writing the Lord of the Rings, which ended in, what was it, 1939? 
I'm forgetting when the time of his first of that first gap in the writing was. I'm not remembering. I'm bad at remembering years off the top of my head. Um, so, so the the you know he he wrote the Lord of the Rings in basically three big pushes, right? Um, the first one started you know the end of 1937, beginning in 1938, um, and went up through and got, got all the way up through Balin's tomb. After, as many of you will remember, writing uh, you know the beginning five or six times, right? Um, uh, then he stopped for a long time, and then he comes back to it, right? Um, so somewhere in there seems to me... So I think during the whole of the... I suspect, and we'll see, you know, if anyone can come up with other evidence that suggests this is not true, I'd be glad to hear it. I'm kind of winging this theory off the top of my head here based on what we've been reading here and what we've read before. Uh, my memory of what we read before, which is not something to trust when coming up with theories like this, but... Um, my theory is that through that whole first wave of writing the Lord of the Rings, he still had not done this. So that this second tier of naming happened either during the hiatus, that first hiatus, or after that first hiatus. Such that when he goes back and does the, you know, the final, he still has plenty of time to go back and add that bit um, where Glowen explicitly makes the connection between Khazad Doom and Moria. Um, yeah. Anyhow. Okay. Um, isn't this fun? I know we're getting like really geeky into like, uh, you know, textual analysis here tonight, but, um, let me once more point to the big picture of why I think this is important. The reason I care <laughs> about this question of like when it got what name and how this works in it helps us to understand where in the stage of his revision of his story about dwarves the Lord of the Rings was um, there are ways in which the stuff that we you know are, 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 are seeing and are reading here can recontextualize, not as radically, the effect isn't anything like as significant as the recontextualization of The Hobbit that you get from reading the Quentin Alderinwa, but, um, but still, it does, um, uh, it does give some, uh, uh, some kind of, some, some pretty interesting, interesting light. Um, okay, anyway, let's do one more, at least. I've gotten kind of in the weeds here this evening, but I'm not sorry. Okay. This is in the Concerning Dwarves section. When he pauses to write... Th now let's... <laughs> let's stop again. Just for a minute. Just for a minute. Um, notice what he's doing. The fact that Tolkien is stopping here in the middle of the Quintus Silmarillion and saying, I'm going to write a whole essay about dwarves is significant. Remember that he did this. Remember the in, in Morgoth's Ring, um, the whole uh, laws and customs among the Eldar section that we were reading, this whole big world-building thing that he was doing when he was working out, like, what are elves and how do they work and, you know, all this other stuff. Um, um, all of those, all that stuff came up in the context, you know, so he's working on the stories and then he comes to a point and that point of course as you'll remember was 
uh, <laughs> was Finway's second marriage, right? Whew. Wow. That was complicated, right? Things, things got awful messy at that point. Um, and he did, you know, this inspired him to write this whole uh, long essay about elves and how they mature and their, you know, their marriages and uh, the, their children and uh, all of this other, all of this other stuff, right? Um, here, he is doing the same thing. And I will say... This strikes me as the very first time, I mean, ever, that Tolkien is sitting down and really considering the dwarves, actually doing world building. They were very bit characters. They were like, there was Meme, the like mustache twirling villain of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, there were the shady dwarves of the Quentin Olderinwa, and we got a little bit of background. I mean, he paused for a little bit of like, let me give you a paragraph to tell you the background of the Nelgrim, right? Um, but it was it was not I'm going to sit down and work through outside of the frame of the text, right? Outside the story, the Quintus Silmarillion I'm going to, I'm going to we interrupt the Quintus Silmarillion to just write an essay about dwarves, which I think is pretty clearly one of the ways in which Tolkien himself processed and developed his own ideas. Um, and so we see Tolkien deciding right now to pause and say, I need to figure out dwarves. I need to figure out what's going on here. I will also note as a side note there, I said, let's pause here. Pause where? Where is he pausing? And I can't help but remember all of the stuff we were noticing about the petty dwarves. This impulse to bring the petty dwarves in, to bring, to reintroduce dwarves in these some of these other ways, right? This seems to be one of the things, anyway, leading to Tolkien needing to sort this out, right? Needing to sit down and figure this stuff out once and for all. So here we go. Let's figure out dwarves for the first time. The Hobbit is written. Probably the first two-thirds of the Fellowship of the Ring is written. And now we're going to figure out what dwarves are for the first time ever. Okay. The Nalgrim are not of elf kind, nor of mankind, nor yet of Melkor's breeding. Yeah, right? Dwarf 1.0 completely uh, discontinued. And the Noldor in Middle-earth knew not whence they came, holding that they were alien to the children, albeit in many ways like unto them. But in Valinor, the wise have learned that the dwarves were made in secret by Aule, while earth was yet dark, for he desired the coming of the children of Iluvatar, that he might have learners to whom he could teach his crafts and lore, and he was unwilling to await the fulfillment of the designs of Iluvatar. Wherefore, though the dwarves are like the orcs in this that they came of the willfulness of one of the Valar. They are not evil, for they were not made out of malice in mockery of the children, but came of the desire of Aule's heart to make things of his own after the pattern of the designs of Iluvatar. And since they came in the days of the power of Melkor, Aule made them strong to endure. Therefore, they are stone-hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and in enmity, 
and they suffer toil and hunger and hurt of body more heartily than all other speaking folk. And they live long, far beyond the span of men, and yet not forever. Aforetime the Noldor held that dying they returned unto the earth and the stone of which they were made. That's from the Quentin Olderinwa. That's what it said in the Quentin Olderinwa. Yet that is not their own belief. For they say that Aule cares for them and gathers them in, Man in Mandos, in halls set apart for them. And there they wait, not in idleness, but in the practice of crafts and the learning of yet deeper lore. And Aule, they say, declared to their fathers of old that, Il that Iluvatar had accepted from him the work of his desire, and that, and that Iluvatar will hallow them and give them a place among the children in the end. Then their part shall be to serve Aule and to aid him in the remaking of Arda after the last battle. Yes, David, this is 1951. So this is before the appendices were conceived. That's why I was dialing it back when I said this is, we're getting this, the stuff that we're getting here, we're getting after everything we read in the Lord of the Rings, not Appendix A. Appendix A comes after this, right? Um, so, and you can see some of the places that Appendix A is drawing from this, right? Exactly. He's recycling stuff uh, for Durin's folk. Yes. Um, though one of the things that I am interested in is what things he selected there. Um, because it's that the, com the comparison is kind of interesting to me. But we're not going to get into that right now. Um, so what's he doing? Notice... There are two places we saw, you know, careful readers will notice Dwarf 1.0 and Dwarf 2.0 both came up during this paragraph, right? During this piece of uh, world building background that Tolkien has just made up for the dwarves. First, Dwarf 1.0 is cited but rejected. They are not of Melkor's breeding. Um, he doesn't add explicitly something like, though I have heard that that lie has been told, right? But he might have done. Um, uh, so anyway, they're, they're, they're not. They're not. They're not of Melkor's breeding. So he acknowledges it. He recontextualizes it. No, no, no. That's a false story. That's a false story. That, that one's not true. Then he raises the second story that also is not true. Dwarf 2.0, aforetime the Noldor held that dying they returned unto the earth and the stone of which they were made, which is what it says in the Quentin Olderinwa. And he says, nope, turns out that's not true either. Now this time he cites it, right? He doesn't blame the Noldor uh, for accusing the dwarves of being Melkor's, of Melkor's breeding. Um, but um, uh, but he, uh, he does cite the Noldor specifically, for believing that false belief about they just they can't be blamed they didn't know they didn't know everything about the dwarves um okay so we are getting so yes we have the, the elf version versus the dwarf version yes and jj you are right no mention of reanimating the mummy of durin that is absolutely correct we don't get that yet um uh zombie durin is Dwarf 4.0, <laughs> I think. But never mind. We're referring, by the way, to the passage in uh, the truly mind-blowing passage in The Nature of Middle-Earth. Um, but anyway, anyway, okay, okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's, 
there is a zombie Durin. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, later than this, um, it's complicated. Anyway, um, never mind. We're talking about this right now. Notice how Tolkien is doing retcon, and he is. Do this is the classic Tolkien method. The stories of dwarves and their background and their nature has changed. So what does he do? Take what he wrote before and ditch it? Nah. That's no fun. Right? It's no fun just to change it and hope nobody notices. No, no, no. The real fun is inciting the old and now incorrect story and recontextualizing the entire thing. Right? Um, yeah. J.J. was just quoting the passage from the Nature of Middle-Earth in which it is said that the, the physical corpse of Durin was like embalmed and preserved and Durin's spirit would actually re-enter and reanimate his old corpse. That's the zombie dwarf passage that I was referring to. Yes. Anyway, never mind. Never mind. Not talking about that right now. <laughs> so anyway, anyway. As I say, that's Dwarf 4.0. We've not gotten quite so far as reanimating the dead. The point is um, the retcon that he's doing here. How he is taking all the stuff that he had before and he's recasting it. Um, uh, let's... Um, okay. Tell you what. Um... As um, as Legolas says, let us not spoil the wonder with haste. Um, let's stop here. What I want to come back to, we'll come back to this passage. We'll start with this passage next time and then move on to the rest of the Concerning Dwarves essay. Um, and we're going to read most of it. Um, I'm not ashamed. Um, I, I'm really fascinated at this moment. When he, whenever he, when he, stop, when he does this kind of thing, right? When he's like, I'm revised, here I am. Minding my own business, revising the Quintus Silmarillion. And then he's like, and now in the middle, I'm going to write a whole essay on this particular topic. Like, come on. Like, that's fascinating, right? Where not only what his mind is moving on to think about and what he's choosing to dig deeper in, but like, why then? Like, what does that show us about what is happening in the story that's emerging in his head at that time? Oh, man, it's so cool. So anyway... We'll come back to this. We'll, 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 we'll look at more of the Concerning Dwarves section next time. And I want to start with this passage. And the question I want to start with uh, for next time is, what is the pattern? What? How is he connecting and also distancing Dwarf... 3.0 from the earlier dwarf, the, 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 the new dwarves, his new concept of dwarves. How is he, how does he relate that to what we saw before? And how does this help us to understand and contextualize dwarves as they come to, as they come to be, as they, as they come to be manifested in his stories? All right. Um, thanks everybody. More next week when we return to Concerning Dwarves. Um, but I won't keep you up all night here tonight. Uh, thanks, everybody. See you guys next week. Bye now.